Our second reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, beginning with the 27th verse of the 6th chapter. And if you'd like to follow along, it's also printed in the middle of your bulletin insert. But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your God is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Here ends our reading. Do you want a challenge? Or do you need comfort today? That was the question Pam asked me as I stood near one of her male Belgian draft horses who towered over me. He was beautiful at a distance. His soft coat highlighted smooth muscles. It was magical to be greeted by him at the gates of her ranch. He knew a visitor was coming long before Pam could see the dust cloud of the car driving up. In exquisite glory, he stood in wait beneath a clear blue sky. He could be playful with the herd and protective, unafraid to use the full force of his weight or pinch of his teeth. Once in the pen, the threat of coming beneath his hooves was real. Pam supervised chaplains in training. Though this does entail more formal psychosocial, theological, and pastoral education, in large part, the training is about the personal work of the individual. It's about calling awareness to all the stuff you, the chaplain, bring with you into a room. The family dynamics, 
the childhood narratives, the relationship to feeling awkward, the assumptions around what is right or wrong, the mixed messages, relationships to authority, including your own, the blind spots and the gifts to be embraced. A horse is a great mirror to help bring all that to the fore. With awareness comes choice and a practice of being at home with oneself. It is this presence that a chaplain can bring into a room, a presence of peace, of love, of kindness, of forgiveness, of authority. Funny how a well-placed question can kick you back into presence of mind. I hadn't even realized I had disappeared, that I had reverted into survival mode, into fight, flight, or freeze. Faced with this powerful being, I had forgotten I also carried authority. I also carried a sense of presence. It wasn't only the horse standing there. How did I want to show up? It is a messy business facing those by whom we feel threatened, those who have caused or who can cause us harm. In the story of Joseph being confronted with his brothers, it's not altogether smooth sailing, though we didn't hear that part. Joseph, you'll remember, had not been the easiest of brothers to live with. He was the favorite child of Jacob, also known as Israel, and not entirely sensitive in his sharing of visions with his siblings as of his continued greatness and their promising future of bowing down to him. They chose to respond by throwing him into a ditch, plotting to kill him, and only changing course when the opportunity presented itself to sell him into slavery in exchange for some silver. Now, the respected man, counselor to Pharaoh, Joseph has a choice when his brothers come near seeking help. How is he going to engage or not? these brothers who treated him as a terrible enemy. Now, while Joseph does end up forgiving his brothers, offering a word of shalom when they are unable, it doesn't come easy. He gives them quite the scare first. In a series of strategic events, Joseph sets up his brothers in order to call them out as those who repay good with evil and thieves of silver, this time a silver cup. This enables Joseph to require recompense without revealing his identity. Benjamin, Jacob's only remaining son by his favorite wife, Rachel, now must be Joseph's slave. And the blame for this and for Jacob's devastation is to rest squarely on the shoulders of Judah, 
the one who first planned to sell Joseph into slavery in the first place. It is only once Joseph has repaid evil for evil that he breaks down and weeps. He quits the charade and invites his brothers to forgive themselves for what they had done. And he becomes what he dreamed of, someone who extends safety and well-being to others. He offers them food to eat, a place to live, pastures for their animals to graze, a home in the midst of famine and an otherwise hostile environment. He extends his access to power and security to those who once were his enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. In a moment of presence of mind, the Lucan community is also faced with the question of how they're going to show up in the face of their enemies. When they have money enough, access enough, how will they choose to share it? Some things were clear. They were not to hate their neighbors, and indeed were required to treat those in need with compassion, to offer, offer bread to eat and something to drink. But in the face of those who had caused harm, or who presented the threat of future harm, how were the people of God to respond? Were they only at their mercy? How were those who followed the teachings of Jesus, who were to be love, to show up? As people of the book, we have wrestled with this call to love our enemies throughout time. For Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin, these lines from Luke became part of the conversation around whether or not there is such a time to use resistance for one's own well-being. Whether or not there is such a thing as a just war. For Aquinas and Calvin, they decided there was. The debate continues. Glimpses do come of when it is possible to both honor our well-being and be love in the world, including for our enemies. In those moments, even if fleeting, it becomes clear that our safety, our well-being, our dreaming is tied up together. And that in choosing to practice love for ourselves, we must practice being loved in the world. If I am to make it safe to be at home with myself, I need to make it safe for others to be at home with themselves, and vice versa.
This is true in relationships, in business, in politics. Though it may be the stuff of the land of ideals, it's also practical. Anyone who has had to negotiate in the workplace, in court, in some political sphere, learns that each negotiating party has their own challenges, concerns, worries to navigate, and that the negotiating goes much better when each player operates with a certain amount of collegiality, with mutual empathy. I understand these are your concerns. Here are mine. How can we work together so that both are respected? And this can happen without abandoning one's integrity. Instead, it can be a way to honor it. I recently ran across a story of an idealistic man. Relatively new to the workforce, he had visions of making a difference in the world and was thrilled to find a job at an organization where this might be possible. A place whose mission, to use Christianese, was to bring about a more peaceable kingdom. But as he would come to find out, it was like many other organizations whose missions describe less the reality of the place and more their greatest areas for growth. The workplace was hostile. How could this be in a place focused on peace? But it was. He learned the hard way where the landmines were. And when new employees came and went, he watched as their hopes in working for a place of peace were deflated. As if he too had gone through training as a chaplain, he realized there was a problem in the family system. It felt too big to change, unmovable. Until the moment came when he recognized a choice, an opportunity to add a different ripple. A colleague who had felt threatened who believed their own credibility and job could be on the line, used him as a scapegoat. Ordinarily, the response, the response he had learned and been trained to use, would be to circle the wagons and undermine the credibility of the threat. But this day, he recognized the fear in his colleague by this time, he had found his sense of authority. He knew his job was safe and that by launching a counterattack, even if justified, would only serve to make his colleague more afraid. He wanted to be about peace in the world, in his work, in himself. So he chose to act by refraining from perpetuating the practice of attack, counter-attack. He chose to act by not acting. He chose to act by practicing what he wanted to be about in the world. He chose to extend safety to his enemy, 
who he recognized wasn't really his enemy. The hostile practice was. In that moment, like a horse standing in wait beneath a clear blue sky, before the dust clouds even settled, the peace of forgiveness greeted them there. Greater than silver, our reward for our efforts in showing up, for practicing being love, is who we become. Godspeed. Amen.